Thanks for listening to the Distribution Podcast. If you like this content, you may also enjoy the webinar I hosted featuring previous podcast guests, Heather Furstrom-Border and Jennifer Stevens, co-founders and managing partners at Alliance Global Advisors. You can now access highlights from the conversation on junipersquare.com forward slash GP resilience, all one word. You will learn about the best practices GPs can use to differentiate themselves from the competition and continue to build meaningful relationships with current and prospective investors. I'm Brandon Sedloff, Managing Director at Juniper Square, and you're listening to The Distribution by Juniper Square. Join us as we sit down with experts from commercial real estate, venture capital, and private equity to discuss trends in technology, fundraising, and private markets. We'll cover this and much more. On today's episode, I sit down with Taylor Mammon, CEO of RC Elko Fund Advisors, or RFA. RFA is a real estate advisory service for institutional investors on all aspects of their complex real estate investment portfolios, from strategy development to underwriting and asset management. Taylor helped pioneer this business beginning in the aftermath of the global financial crisis, when several prominent pension funds turned to RFA with the goal of constructing better performing and more resilient real estate portfolios and has grown it to become a highly respected institutional real estate advisor, working with some of the largest and most dynamic institutional investors in the world. On today's podcast, we have a wide-ranging discussion covering how RFA operates as a consultant, the macro economy, and the role that real estate plays, along with the importance of operational efficiency. RFA is a data-driven consultant, and I enjoyed hearing Taylor's perspectives on the investor's changing appetite and the need for alpha, what investors look for in a partner, and the importance of having a, quote, strategic approach to investing, along with the importance of communication in managing LP and LP advisor relationships. Let's get into it. Taylor, thanks for joining me today. Brandon, great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Looking forward to the conversation. Let's dive right into it. I like to have all my guests start by introducing themselves. So can you tell us a little bit more about yourself, your role, and a little bit more about RCLCO and RFA Fund Advisors? Yeah, sure. Happy to. I'm Taylor Mammon. I'm CEO of RCLCO Fund Advisors, which is an affiliate of RCLCO. RCLCO, I'll begin with that, since it's been around for almost 60 years, is a real estate consultancy focused on real estate economic consulting and management consulting. I joined RCLCO about 17 years ago out of graduate school, essentially to continue my education in real estate, and ended up getting stuck. Very grateful that I did. RFA, or RCL Co-Fund Advisors, was formed about 11 years ago at this point, taking advantage of the great financial crisis, which led to both inferior performance of real estate portfolios for institutional investors, and in many ways, more importantly, a lot of frustration on the part of institutional investors regarding their real estate portfolios. And so with, uh, with, with my colleagues, We started working on behalf of a couple of state pension funds and have grown that business from there to what it is today, which is about $100 billion in assets under advisement, about a dozen clients, both domestically and globally. Commonality among our clients is they happen to be fairly large institutional investors, large enough to have 
direct investments in real estate. And, that, and that's really where we help more than anything is in acting as an outsourced resource to help institutional investors manage direct portfolios in, in, in real estate across property types, risk profiles, vehicles, and so on. I had no idea that it had been 11 years since RFA got started. It seems like just yesterday. Many of our listeners are, are familiar with the kind of institutional consulting LP advisory model, but you mentioned, you know, funds under advisement. Can you talk a little bit more just about kind of, you know, you, you, you started to describe the role that you play on behalf of LPs, but maybe just unpack that a little bit more so we understand kind of where you sit, specifically who your client is, maybe what a typical engagement or relationship model looks like, and then the services that you provide to the client. Yeah, sure. And and I think there's a there's a spectrum and differences from client to client, but I typically describe our role as consisting or or as as being in one of three buckets essentially. So the first bucket is essentially as the outsourced real estate department for an LP where we help typically working with one or two people on the LP side develop real estate investment strategy, figure out how to implement that strategy through manager selection, fund selection, where appropriate, geography, and so on. We then assist in uh, identifying potential managers, potential strategies, underwriting, negotiating term sheets and operating agreements, and then overseeing those relationships, really acting as the LP's rep and in overseeing major decisions and hold cell analyses and so on. So that's kind of like the the entire role there. The other roles that we play on behalf of clients, uh, you know, kind of take pieces of that and apply it to what the client specifically need. In some cases, we have ongoing retainer-based relationships in which we manage a particular aspect of an institutional investor's portfolio, whether it's high-level strategic advice or advice on a, a, advice and oversight on a particular strategy, like a particular property type or something like that. And then the third bucket is ad hoc services, which is something that we're comfortable with coming out of RCLCO, where all of what RCLCO does is really on an ad hoc project by project basis. We think that's a really important way to maintain long-term relationships with clients, get our foot in the door, hopefully, for, for much larger relationships. So a pretty meaningful amount of what we do is project-based research, project-based underwriting, evaluation of existing managers or existing funds or separate accounts to provide advice regarding pretty discrete things. So, our, and, and you asked about clients. We, uh, as I said, our clients are all fairly large. So they're, they're state pension funds, sovereign wealth funds. We have a growing international practice. Generally, focused on their investments or their interest in investing more in the United States. And that consists of very large banks. We have a telecommunications company that invests on its balance sheet that in, in, in the United States. So very, very diverse, very interesting. It keeps us on our toes and always trying to keep up with the, the range of client questions that we get. 
I'm looking forward to digging into what some of the house views are. Before we uh, before we get there, one more clarifying question on the business, just from an orientation perspective. Consultants are often synonymous with gatekeepers, meaning that if you're looking to raise money, you need to work through the consultant. The consultant evaluates you as a as a GP or an operator and assesses your you know worthiness for for investment to meet the the investor specific strategy. Would you consider you know, RFA also as a gatekeeper or how do you compare contrast from looking at the quote unquote more traditional consulting model? Yeah, yeah, that that certainly is a component of what we do. That's certainly how some clients utilize us is as an initial screen or final screen for an investment that they have the potential to make. I think that something that's happened in the consulting industry over time is that that gatekeeper role, let's be honest, has really become kind of a box checking exercise for, for, for many investors. And we, we don't think it should be. We, we, we actually think that institutional investors, and I think our clients agree, benefit from hands-on, customized, research-driven, experienced support when making decisions about how to invest, what to invest in, and and so on. And so I think that is a difference between how we help institutional investors and how many of the other consulting firms do is we're we're very customized, very hands-on. One primary difference how you how you see that is we we don't underwrite every fund offering. We, we don't have a, a menu of kind of approved funds with the RFA housekeeping seal of approval. Rather, we work with our clients to help them develop investment strategies. You know, where should they be more allocated? By property type, by geography, by risk profile. We work with them to really try to understand important goals, objectives, values, and so on. And then based upon that, we'll go out and identify potential managers, potential funds, potential offerings that make sense for the clients. And then from there, we'll do diligence. And so based upon our overall level of activity, that that ends up adding up to a lot of managers, funds that we are underwriting and getting to know but it's all done, you know, from a client first perspective rather than kind of a fund first and then share with your clients what you've learned about the funds. Fascinating. No, I think you did a great job describing some of the differences there. All right. Well, we could go on and on about the business, but let's talk about the market. So you mentioned your clients are both domestic and international. Let's start at the kind of 30,000 foot level. The global economy has been kind of in turmoil, but we're here in the United States. Kind of what is the general view or appetite for U.S. real estate? And I'm deliberately saying U.S. real estate in the broadest sense, and I'll let you kind of enumerate or unpack the specific sectors or strategies, but how are your clients thinking about allocations to U.S. private real estate today? Sure. Well, I I would say that though the appetite's coming back a, a little bit, it still is subdued relative to where it's been, I, I would say, for most of the past decade. For most of the past decade, I think most institutional investors were continually trying to keep up with both an ever-growing real estate allocation target that was the tre- that's been the trend over a while, as well as 
a pretty continually growing stock market, which is, you know, kind of the I I shouldn't say the tail that wags the dog. It's kind of the dog that wags the tail. I mean, the public equities portfolio is the the largest segment of most institutional portfolios. and, And it's been steadily growing since the GFC. So that has led to almost a well let's just say it's it's led to a voracious appetite for real assets real estate and and so on up through april of 2022 where we started to see meaningful declines in the stock market creating a denominator effect and greater uncertainty truly meaningful uncertainty regarding how real assets or let's say private markets assets should be valued going forward and though the stock market has recovered quite a bit this year lessening the denominator effect on on real estate allocations the uncertainty remains i i would say has not been mitigated in any way since the, we the Fed started hiking rates in spring of 2022. So that leads to more of a subdued appetite. I think across the board, investors are investing, recognizing that it is important to always be in the market, that diversification by vintage is truly important, and that there do seem to be good opportunities out there to, to acquire assets and opportunities for good pricing but you can see it in the numbers the volume is way down and and i think it will be down until this uncertainty is resolved and when one of the things you said that was interesting is you know the, this kind of desire the appetite to you know keep up with increasing allocations if you look at your client base by domestic you know north america based clients and international clients how are they varying in their kind of allocations to private real estate in the market right now meaning what what's the range in allocation that, well, that guess, we're seeing I guess both what is the range in allocation that you're seeing and then directionally are allocations holding steady are people starting to decrease allocations because from my perspective one of the things that we often talk about is real estate is relatively new r- relative air quotes uh, new as a alternative you know asset to invest in and allocations should continue to increase so does this current market environment put a kind of a pause on the increase in allocation are you seeing, despite market conditions, that you know allocations are continuing to increase? I think that's a huge question right now, and is directly tied to you know potentially two paths that the economy might follow. And so, I'm, so sorry, I'm taking a step back before I answer your question directly, Brandon. If that, if if, if sure. that's okay, yeah, yeah, please. Because I, I think, I think the general consensus for most of the past year has been that the Fed is going to, and and other central banks are going to put the economy into a recession. We're going to overcorrect through quantitative tightening and raising the interest rate, leading to destruction of demand, and therefore the need for the Fed to, sooner rather than later, stimulate the economy once again. So, So bringing interest rates and therefore discount rates like cap rates down and you know start starting the cycle all all over again i think there's growing consensus which is why we've seen treasury rates expand so much long term treasury rates expand so much over the past two weeks we're doing this interview on the 22nd of august 2023 at this point that 
you know, maybe it's going to take a lot more for the Fed to destroy demand within the overall economy, that interest rates are going to have to maybe even go higher or stay high for longer. And, you know, we'll, we'll avoid a typical recession altogether. I think that that scenario is, you know, if, if not riskier, then much more challenging for the institutional real estate industry to address. We don't really know it. It hasn't happened for a long time, certainly not in my career. I think in most people's career where interest rates stay high for quite a while, the logical outcome of that is a relative shift. And whether this is stated in actual target allocations within pension funds or in tactical maneuvers that pension funds and other institutional investors take from real estate, not just real estate, but real assets to credit, which for a long time is, you know, is, is a much lower risk investment strategy for the most part, but has not generated the returns needed in order to meet actuarial requirements. That's shifted in the past year to a large degree. And again, if we're in kind of this higher for longer environment for interest rates, it will prolong the shift and, and make credit relatively more affordable. So, so back to your question, where are allocations going? Right now, largely holding steady, which makes sense. These are supposed to be long-term strategic asset allocations. You don't just change them when the economy changes. But the longer this high interest rate environment goes on, I think the more pressure real estate, real asset allocations will have. So sorry for the long answer. No, I think I think it, uh, it, it it's super insightful. And I mean, I guess when you think about the stated objective of, you know, destruction of demand by keeping rates higher for longer, yet you marry that with this wall of capital that's already been raised or that's, you know, sitting there, you know, quote unquote, looking to commit to to real assets. I mean, what's the view on the viability? I mean, do you have a house view on, you know, does higher for longer actually mean destruction of demand? Or does it just mean what you said, shift to kind of more diversified strategies like like credit instead of real assets? Yeah, sure. E- eventually, it should, it, it'll either destroy demand. I mean, that's a dramatic way of saying create a recession, which means the overall economy shrinks. You know, we all demand less stuff. There's job loss and so on. Eventually, either higher for longer will cause that. Something will happen to actually lead the the overall U.S. economy, other major economies to shrink over two quarters. Or it'll just create a drag on growth, right? We just won't grow as much in 2024, 2025, as we would have if we were coming out of a recession. And in in either of those scenarios, you know, going back to to what you said about the wall of capital, in either of those scenarios it gets it gets invested <laughs> because dry powder always does, but depending on the scenario it gets invested in different ways. In a recession, that's easy. Everybody knows the the recession playbook. You kind of wait until it's it's pretty clear that there's been a bottom or that we're approaching a bottom and you buy stuff below replacement cost. That's what everybody wants to do at, at this point in time. In a higher for longer scenario, 
it's tougher. It's just tougher to figure out where to deploy that capital. What what we're doing based upon that potential condition is really focusing on where we can generate, where, where we can get some operational leverage, where we can get a premium for taking some operational risk, whether that's in D- development and we're we're still supporting development activities on behalf of our clients or in driving operational improvements basically trying to get some kind of risk premium or spread over where we think market cap rates are today where we think it's possible for them to be to provide that cushion and generate high enough income returns that if Cap rates don't come down anytime soon. We'll still be okay. That you know, which which is by the way, is probably what real estate investors should always be doing. We just got really lazy at it because we've always been saved by cap rates. Like in all of our careers, we've been saved by cap rates <laughs> over the long term. Over the long term, but if you look at interest rates over the long term, they're higher than they have been for the last you know two decades. But they're certainly not higher than the historical average, correct? Right. And that, that, that's exactly right. But in all of our careers, I mean, maybe there are some listening to your podcast that started investing in the 1950s. Uh, otherwise, for all of us, we've seen a generally steady decline with some you know, cyclical changes of interest rates and therefore discount rates for all equity investment. That, that's been continual. And I mean, I, I don't know what, what what's going to happen, but I but I do think there's a reasonable argument to be made that that cycle may not play out as it has in the past go, going forward, that we might be in a situation where interest rates will be higher for longer periods than they have been during previous downturns. This is a different type of downturn than what we're experiencing. And that you therefore just cannot rely on you know, kind of that that arbitrage, you know, buy cheap, sell high to save you. You know, it's, it really means that you have to focus on operations. Well, we, we know uh, at Juniper Square that operations matter a lot, at least in the middle and back office. But we'll save that for a different conversation. You mentioned the the R word, recession. You know, what's the... RFA view on will there be a recession? Will there not? How are you talking to your clients about kind of managing or mitigating the risks associated with the recession? Sure. And our, our house view, I should make perfectly clear, continues to be that there are better than even odds that we experience a recession over the next 12 to 18 months. And I, I would say, and in, in we've talked about it a lot, obviously, I think the primary reason for that is because of the inverted yield curve that the trillions of, of of dollars being invested in the bond market is is assuming that there's going to be some type of recession essentially. We don't want to argue against that, but it's been interesting to see our house view change over time to show relatively greater odds of us avoiding a recession. We've we've kind of described that as an upside case of avoid the recession. But I actually think it's going to be a really difficult upside to manage because it it leads to kind of this higher for longer scenario. So but so our base case is is that there's there is a likely recession. At the same time, we've been telling our clients and kind of conveying to the industry 
that we think that unlike during the GFC, unlike during the savings and loan recession of the early 1990s, which are the kind of the defining moments in the real estate industry, at least the the, the last two or three generations of, of professionals in the real estate industry, we don't think that there's going to be widespread distress that you can take advantage of in, in, in kind of a simple, straightforward way. We don't think there's going to be a lot of distress. And when I say distress, what I, what I really mean is assets that are taken back by the banks or by lenders and sold at really cheap pricing. You know, which, which again, we, we saw that during the last two major recessions in real estate. I think there is going to be a lot of distress in real estate going around this time, but that'll be concentrated in office. And because of the, to use the word again, destruction of demand that we're seeing in office, that, that, that isn't just buy a cheap office building, maintain it for a little while, and then sell it for a higher price. No, you're going to have to entirely change what that office building is for the most part, right? Just speaking in generalities at this point. And that that's that's more than the the investing that you had to do in order to perform well during the prior two recessions. So it's again really about identifying where we think demand is going to be strong for the long term, buying high quality properties and high quality markets for lower prices and good yields relative to what you've been able to do for the past several years. And enjoy that income uh, in the near term, since it's again we think it's going to be income that that is the primary savior of of investment portfolios. So one of the more controversial topics that you and I have discussed, and that you know is starting to come up more and more in LP and consulting and even GP communities, is just the fact that the traditional closed end real estate fund, when you look at the data, and maybe you can enlighten us based on your own research, just simply hasn't generated enough or any alpha. And so, you know, investors are starting to think about, you know, what is the future of closed-end fund investing? So as you think about some of these systemic or structural shifts, what does your research tell you and, you know, and kind of how are you educating your clients on what that may mean for their investing strategy? Yeah, I think I think this is I'm glad you brought it up, Brandon, because I think this is a really important topic that we're not talking about enough. I, I think a, a lot of us in the industry, LPs, GPs, and consultants have been kind of too quick to dismiss some of the academic articles that have come out or say, well, my portfolio is different <laughs> or, or just like, <laughs> I know, or yeah, exactly. Or, or just go to lunch and like say, all right, I'll worry about this an, an, another day. But I, I think the, the research that's come out is, is, is really pretty compelling, largely because there's just more data that, that researchers can rely upon at this point. And, and I'll say when, when, when you see the results, it's also intuitive in, in many ways as well that real estate closed end funds generally don't deliver what, what, what they're supposed to deliver. And, and a large part of the reason for that is the, the, the structure of the fund itself, I, I believe. And, and the fact that if your business as, as a real estate company is built predominantly or in large part on raising 
capital in a closed end fund, investing that capital, uh, harvesting that capital, and then doing it all over again in kind of like three year cycles, it means that a lot of those funds are not going to work out very well. I think that the real estate fund industry, really closed end fund industry, really got its start in, in the RTC era when it was incredibly profitable to pool some money together in a fund, invest it in all of these cheap assets, and then harvest it and give give the money plus a return back to those investors. That Those are the periods when a closed-end fund makes sense, when you know everything is cheap, essentially. You just have to buy it effectively within a relatively short window and then move on. But most times in the market are just simply not like that. It's also different from the private equity closed-end fund scenario, I I think in large part because there are just fewer value creation levers in real estate relative to private equity. You know, like, let's just be honest, like, real estate's a pretty boring industry. I think that's why a lot of us got into it. It it isn't boring, of course, but but it's, it's simple. You you can only do so many things with, with an asset. You can develop it. But that doesn't work really well in closed-end funds because of the timing associated with development. You can buy a vacant building and lease it up, but, you know, okay, that, that's one value creation activity that you can undertake. But there are oftentimes real reasons why, you know, buildings are vacant. You can, like, rebrand a building, but there's only only so much that, that you can do. So kind of this whole concept of opportunity fund in real estate, you know, what opportunities do you really have, you know, <laughs> so, you know, to, to, to generate those types of returns? There aren't many. And again, I'm talking in generalities. I think there are some managers that have very discreet, very specific strategies that allow them to be opportunistic uh, in, in all stages of the cycle. But that's that's the minority rather than the majority but the way that the industry has formed, the way capital has been organized in, in real estate still just kind of relies upon there being, you know, some opportunistic funds in order to balance out, you know, core real estate and generate returns that the LPs need, essentially. So if you're not able to consistently generate opportunistic returns or at least you're taking way too much risk to generate the returns that you are, it does lead to kind of a crisis of, well, what what are, what are we supposed to do then? And this is where a lot of the conversations that we're having take place. And what the academics in these articles suggest is either, you know, all right, just, just lever your core real estate that gets you the same returns as opportunistic funds have generated. And I, I think that's a pretty reasonable strategy to a large degree, but it isn't you know, u- universally applicable since l- leverage does introduce in- additional risk into investing. O- over the past year, levered core did a lot worse than under leveraged or unlevered core. So not not perfect, not a perfect solution. It might not provide sufficient diversification to, to an overall portfolio. The other strategy that groups point to are the public is the public market. So in, in investing in REITs, kind of looking at the fact that long-term REIT performance is very similar, even potentially outperforms private market performance. And I and I think REITs are probably a really important part of real estate portfolios as well. 
the challenge, and it is a real challenge for institutional investors, is that there's meaningful short-term volatility in REITs. And I do think, and there, this is a huge debate among kind of researchers, academics, and so on. I, I do think that public real estate is valued differently from private real estate, even by, you know, market participants. That so you just can't rely on, you know, S&P 500 sentiment to determine how real estate assets are valued. So it's not a, it's not a perfect correlation to private markets. And so you lose some of the diversification benefits from private markets as well. And then the, the third strategy is, is open-ended funds. And I think that's an important part of the strategy as well. They, I think I think we're going to see a, a proliferation of open-ended funds coming out of this crisis, even in spite of the fact that they are not as liquid as a, a lot of people assume that they will be. As you you absolutely lose liquidity in the in the times in which you want it in, in an open-ended fund, but that might be just fine, right? <laughs> it's like you probably shouldn't be putting money in and pulling it out whenever you want to anyway. I think open-ended funds are are going to be an important piece of it. I think another important aspect uh, or or an important answer to the the question of what do you do if you can't do opportunity funds is is to find other ways to generate value in, in real estate through the value levers that you have, development, leasing up properties and so on, but to do so in vehicles that don't have the same misalignments of interests and leverage and timing issues that closed-end funds do. And and that means through programmatic joint ventures and separate accounts. I I think that for funds that that, that are large enough or have the resources, either internal or external, like RFA, I think that's an important part of the strategy is, is to identify long-term vehicles, open-ended, that allow investors to take some risk, but not be constrained by the timing and other issues within closed-end funds. Yeah. And also to drive alignment, like you said, I think I think that's a really important point. I mean, in some regards, it's a it's an interesting irony because I know that a lot of the largest real estate, you know, closed end and opportunistic managers have, you know, really been focused on how do they build enterprise value. You can do that all also through driving operational efficiency. But the thing that really kind of keeps the wheels turning is the the fee related earnings, which is, you know, or the FRE, which which is directly tied to the amount of capital that you're managing. And so in this model, it kind of shifts the alignment from, you know, the the FRE to the actual performance of the investment. And so I think that kind of in many regards, like you said, gets back to the fundamentals of, of commercial real estate. So if you if you do need to do something different than just invest in your traditional, if your view is or some's view, the academic view is that you need to do something different than just invest in traditional closed end funds, you know, what do you do? You mentioned, you know, structure, separate accounts and JVs. You mentioned things like development. How do you think about kind of the performance of sector specialists, you know, niche sectors, whether it's industrial outdoor storage, which is booming right now, or industrial, which has been on a tear. How do you think about kind of where these niche sectors, BTR, SFR, which I know RCLCO is very involved in, how do you think, what is the role of these niche sectors in portfolio creation for a typical institutional investor? Yeah, great question. And and I'll 
I'll kind of outline, I think, three components to, to that answer. So the, the first is vehicle. I think different vehicle types, is, and you mentioned this, is very important. I think programmatic joint ventures, separate accounts for certain investors should be an essential way in which they can generate value. The second is to look to where demand is going to be rather than where it's been. I think for too long, institutional investors have looked at different property types or geographies as primarily reflecting different financial metrics. So, you know, this property type generates lots of income, but not appreciation because they, they kind of think of them like they're financial instruments rather than like individual businesses or business types that essentially are recipients of demand or beneficiaries of demand. And so I think thinking about real estate as where the economy happens, where demography happens, where preferences are expressed, and how that impacts demand over time is super important. So that's kind of the second layer. Like, think about where demand is going to be. And then, the, and, and by the way, that's, that isn't rocket science. You can kind of see where demand is going based upon the aging of the population, broad economic trends, and just think through how does that impact different types of real estate. And then the third is what I've already mentioned, which is operations, like find investment managers, find operators that know how to address that demand, have a demonstrated track record of operating real estate effectively. Again, real estate should not be viewed as a financial instrument. It is essentially a collection of small businesses where the primary business of each individual LLC is to lease up a building, keep it leased for the highest rents possible. They're they're all in individual businesses. And I think, you know, Brandon, back to your back to your question, I think that a lot of the niche property types offer all of those advantages. You know, you you can generate a lot of value by doing some development or value creation activities through a joint venture or a sector-specific fund. They are beneficiaries of growing or changing demand in the economy or in society, and they benefit from operational leverage. And so we've been focused on niche, niche sectors to a much greater degree than we see expressed in the benchmarks and ACREF and so on, than I think a lot of our peers since we started this business. So we've been very active in medical office, seniors housing, student housing, for better or worse, data centers, self-storage, and and you mentioned build-to-rent single family, largely because we 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 see Demand headed in those directions, meaning we need more of that product than there might be some real supply constraints that prevent it from being built in many locations. And we see operators that are able to generate operational premiums for, for, for investing in it. So big fans and think that they're, they're going to meaningfully grow as a private institutional asset class, meaningfully change the benchmarks over time. Yeah. I think I think it'll be interesting to watch, but there's certainly a lot more interest in some of the niche sectors uh, today than than there has been historically. And I know that you've been at the leading edge. So you've mentioned the word kind of operational leverage. You know, I think you've intuited operational excellence. We've talked about operational efficiency. 
Let's talk a little bit about kind of manager selection. When we started the conversation, you talked about how you kind of work hand in glove with your partner, you develop a thesis, you make recommendations, you do research, and then you go out and you try to find, you know, the operators or the managers that fit the recommendation, and then you evaluate them. Talk to me a little bit about what that process looks like. And specifically, how do you know if a manager is capable of, you know, creating leverage through their operations when you're really just kind of maybe getting acquainted with them, looking at their books for the first time, because that's a real important part of this thesis. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I think it's really difficult and we certainly don't have a perfect track record of of doing that as, as an advisor to our clients, but, but try to learn <laughs> from every mistake. I think... The first most important characteristic that that I'm looking for and that our team is looking for when evaluating potential managers to work on behalf of our clients is their strategy and the strategic approach to, to investing. It's more important than track record, I would say. Because at that stage of the process, you've only been presented a track record and track record can be presented in many different ways. If somebody's sharing a track record, it's presented in the most positive way is something we can rely upon. But the strategic statement is a strategic statement. And, and that's what gets us interested. You know, if, if, if somebody has been able to express a clear, compelling strategy that seems data driven, we're, we're going to get interested in, in that opportunity. And that's what we're going to dig into to a large degree in the underwriting process. In, in addition to doing all of the other, you know, investment due diligence, operational due diligence stuff, it, it really is about what is the strategy? How is the strategy developed and how is it executed in operations? And so the people we really want to talk to in the diligence process, in addition to the senior leadership team, who should really be the owners of the strategy ultimately, are the head of research, which should be not just a marketing tool, but actually a, a driver of the strategy, the heads of uh, acquisitions and helping really digging in to understand how are they utilizing the strategy? How is the strategy influencing how they acquire properties? How are they incentivized to ensure that, that they're not just throwing spaghetti against the wall, but they're really invested in, in a company's strategy? And then the heads of asset management as, as well, which I think in our industry, asset management has been underemphasized for far too long. I think I, 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 there will probably be listeners of your podcast that appreciate this. I think asset managers have been underpaid for, for a long time. I think we need to put more emphasis on the importance of that execution of the strategy on a day-to-day -day basis on, on, on the assets. And, and not just being good buyers of assets, but good sellers as well, knowing when is the right time to sell. And so the diligence process is really driven by a series of we hope like really in-depth conversations with these individuals, touring assets to give the managers the opportunity to help us understand how the strategy relates to these assets, both in terms of the acquisition process as well as asset management. And then putting putting all of that together in what you hope is a cohesive picture of a group that that is very strategic and where that strategy 
goes through everything and see how that strategy impacts the track record. Because you can say, right, and, and every every single document does that presents track record is that past results are not indicative of future success. But if you can demonstrate through the diligence process how the strategy and the operations have contributed to the track record historically, and that 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 story makes sense. Of course, you can never prove causality, but that story makes sense. Then you have a lot more confidence that the track record actually is potentially an indicator of future success as well. There's a lot of what you just said that's really interesting. And I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but probably pretty different to both the ways that GPs approach conversations with LPs and their consultants and the way that some of your other peers in the consulting world approach manager selection. For example, I'm not aware of too many GPs who show up to a conversation with their head of research or their head of asset management. It's often, you know, folks in marketing or leadership who show up kind of presenting. So, I mean, is that like, if you were to go into advice giving, maybe it's not necessarily so much about how to get a meeting with RFA, but you see so many GPs who give you, you know, the, the, the shiny object pitch, which they should, they're marketers. And I have great respect and admiration for the hard work of what it takes to market your product. But like, what, what can you do to be different when you show up to meet with Taylor or your team or any consultant or LP for that matter? Yeah, well, I think, you know, and, and it, it's probably a bias on our part based upon our, our provenance, where, where we come from, but we want to learn something in, in the conversation and we, we want to see your research. We want to see how the research Im- impacts your strategy. And I, I see it uh, oftentimes as a, an appendix in the back of the pitch deck, kind of what the research is. I think, I think it should really be more front and center since, since that is, Again, what 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 ultimately drives success is you know because because it, it it leads to what you're going to invest in it and 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 how so so that that's certainly important. I I also think it's really important, maybe going a step back, is for investors to have a strong. I'm sorry, investment managers to have a strong point of view re- regarding how how they want to invest and and I think. You know, one thing that closed end fund managers do well is have a strong point of view. They say, this is how we're going to invest your capital. Where where that falls down a a little bit is when you're talking about separate accounts or joint ventures. And again, I think that's how the business has been developed is like the separate account manager just does kind of what the investor, you know, the, the investor needs a bunch of core properties in the Southeast. We'll, we'll do a separate account for you for that. What I'd like to hear more of is for a programmatic vehicle, a managed account or something like that, managers say, if we were investing capital for the long term, this is what we would do with it <laughs> based upon our strategy, our research and so on. and really have a strong point of view on, on that. And then I think finally, it you know, just just going back to the other characteristic or pillar that I was talking about before, I, I think it is really important to talk about operations up front, you know. One of my pet peeves, and it's probably coming through in the conversation, is for somebody to describe real estate as as just a financial instrument. And I think that that's important. It's an important aspect of of what real estate offers to an institutional investor. 
but but I want to understand how those how those financial metrics are driven because and the, because they're ultimately driven by how an asset is acquired, how it's operated, and how it's sold. All of those are operational decisions. Yeah, I think it's a fair point, and and I think your point around alignment and what the the GP would do is also also a fair point. And I think one of the things that makes our interesting uh, our industry so interesting. So we've got you know. Can I can I say one more thing actually that I that I just thought of? The the other thing that I think, and and this is hard to do, I I recognize, but it's very important that managers or those that want institutional capital know who their competitors are and know what their competitors are saying. I mean, it's it's kind of a joke, an inside joke among LPs and consultants. I'd say there are a number of inside jokes among LPs and, and consultants about the, the taglines that managers use that they think they're unique in in using, like like middle market invest. We're super unique because we're a middle market investor. I mean, like everybody's a middle market in, in investor. It's 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 no longer unique. And there are a ton of those that that you go through. And I think it's you know just just with any sales process, it's it's super important to to really know what your value proposition is relative to the competition. Not 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 so that you can speak poorly of your competition in in those conversations. That's never a good look. But but so that you can really clearly articulate what makes you different. Well, I I couldn't agree more, and I think that applies in any form of sales or or business development. And I will just leave it at that. So, in the few minutes that we have left, so want to wrap up by talking about you've gone through the process, you've evaluated a manager, you like the manager. What is important for you as a consultant and your client, the LP, kind of once an investment's been made, how do you, you know, build and then maintain meaningful relationships with your investors? Any kind of like heuristic or words of advice that you have that are really critical for for managers to be aware of? I mean, it probably is as simple as communication is kind of the key tool and it's communication on, on different levels and at different timing. But the difference between the top performing partners and those most likely to receive growing allocations, grow, you know, n- new investments and so on. And the other side uh, of the coin is how effectively are they communicating with their LPs and, and their LPs advisors. And when I say at different levels, the communication kind of starts with reporting, simple reporting, being able to provide financial statements, performance analytics within a short period of time to, to, to investors. Sounds super simple. Not many do it very well. And it's super important to the LP because that's the only way that they can evaluate how they're doing <laughs> as an investor. So that's kind of like, Stage number one. Stage number two is kind of the periodic conversations that take place. You know, the the qualitative descriptions behind the numbers that are taking place. And that can be in writing. It, it can and should also be in person. Level number three would be ad hoc communications. An article comes out that reflects what's going on in industrial. It's in Bloomberg, so the LP has probably seen it. Call them up and say, you know, I, I this this article came out. Here's here's our interpretation, or here how here's how this trend is impacting your portfolio, or something like that. And then the fourth, 
probably to to use an overused word in this conversation is kind of the strategic conversation as well, which should take place at least annually. And more often, if there are events shaping up in the economy or in property markets that merit it. And that's where the the manager has the opportunity and I would say real obligation to say, here's what's going well in our strategy or here's what's going poorly in our strategy. And here are our recommendations for you know how we should change that. And here are the implications on the investment guidelines, financing guidelines, how we're communicating, how we're working together, like really being proactively to keep the relationship alive and well When it comes down to it, it's not that different from any other relationship that you have. You should have lots of communication, should be at different levels, and every now and then you should do an assessment for how things are going. And if things aren't going well, get a counselor. (laughs) I'm so tempted just to leave it on that. I don't know if I can help myself. Um, That that might be the first time we end a podcast on get a counselor, but I I, I love it. So you've you've given a tremendous amount of great advice. I do always like to wrap up these episodes by, you know, offering the opportunity for you to either repeat one thing that you've already said, because important stuff needs to be stated, you know, hundreds of times for it to set in, or give one new piece of advice to a manager that's in the market today, looking to build new relationships with LPs and with their advisors. One piece of advice you have for them, if they take nothing else away from this whole conversation that we've had. Well, I'll, I'll say two things, if, if that's okay. I am grateful every day that I made a commitment early in my career to, early in my education and then career, to, to be in real estate. I, I, I love real estate. I think that it has both really important and positive impacts on the world in which we live, and I think it's going to perform well over the long term, almost in kind of whatever economy or society we have. So let's all be grateful that that we're in real estate. There are tremendous opportunities here. And then second, remember that investors are looking to managers to help them know what to do. That That's one of the things that is, you know, effectively outsourced. I think investors do and should have perspective on how to invest, but they're not on the ground. They're the ultimate allocators, essentially. So, you know, for, for managers, especially emerging managers that are looking to raise capital, leverage what you know, what you've learned, what you're observing at the ground level of real estate to develop compelling strategies and lead with that. In the end, even today, there's more capital to be invested than there are good opportunities for it. So so help us as advisors and help the LPs know what, what those opportunities are with solid research and good examples. And it's hard work and lots of phone calls and, and meetings that don't work out. But in the end, I, I, I do think that the capital will largely take care of itself. Awesome. Well, with that, Taylor, if people want to find you or learn more about RFA or RCLCO, what's the best way they should do that? Sure. Well, they can certainly go to our website, which is www.rclco.com slash RFA, which is the specific page for our business. And uh, that's where you can find my phone number and email address. You're more than welcome to reach out. We'll see how many have listened this far and take 
take you up on that offer. Well, it's been a true pleasure. I always appreciate your insights on the market, Taylor. And thank you for joining me today. I know our listeners will find this very valuable and I look forward to seeing uh, how many of our predictions come true. So thanks again for joining me. It was great to see you. Great. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Brandon. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of The Distribution by Juniper Square. If you liked today's podcast, please share it with a colleague or a friend. And don't forget to subscribe and rate The Distribution on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can connect with me on LinkedIn by going to www.linkedin.com forward slash IN forward slash B Sedloff. Or you can find me on Twitter at B Sedloff. You can also find a video recording of this conversation on demand at junipersquare.com forward slash the dash distribution. Until next time.